Welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I am excited to have Robert W. Adler Jr. as my guest here in studio on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Rob Adler is the foremost residential architect in Monmouth and Ocean Counties in New Jersey. He received his degree in architecture from Cornell University in 1986, and by 1989, he had established his own firm in Long Branch, New Jersey. Fast forward nearly 35 years, and Rob's practice has expanded from designing single-family homes to designing commercial projects and major developments. Today, he boasts a portfolio featuring some of the most prestigious addresses and clientele along the Jersey Shore. In addition to his architectural practice, Rob has expanded his business pursuits. He owns R.W. Adler Builders, a local high-end construction company, holds a stake in Sustained Sports, a sports-based real estate development firm, and in Ecological Resources Group, ERG, an environmental development company. Rob's work has received significant recognition in numerous publications. He has been featured in Dream Homes of New Jersey, been on the cover of Remodeling Magazine, where he earned a spot on their Distinguished Big 50 list, and he was highlighted as one of the nation's finest architects in the nationally acclaimed book, Signature Homes. Rob is a member of the American Institute of Architects, the Jersey Shore chapter of the AIA, the Association of Home Builders, the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and is the chair of the Rumson Historic Preservation Committee. Despite his accomplishments, Rob maintains a pretty low profile, but thankfully today he has agreed to be on the show. Rob, I'm so excited to have you here. I'm really excited to be here as well. It's great to see you. So I want to tell a little bit of story about kind of why it's so special that you're here. Um, you started my career for all intents and purposes. Um, and, you know, when um, – and so it, it's extremely meaningful to have you here. And about 30, about 35 years ago, I would say, um, if, if your firm is about 35 years old, I would say about 30 years ago – um, I was an architecture student uh, going to the University of Miami, and when I came home from the summer, I was expecting uh, to go back to lifeguarding, and my parents said, nope, nope, you need to get a job in your chosen profession, no more lifeguarding for you, um, and I remember saying like, oh, I'm way too green, nobody's going to hire me, I just went to like my first year of architecture school, it's never going to happen, um, and so... For the one and only time in my life, I made a cold call. Uh, I've never made another cold call in my entire life since. Um, but I looked up uh, architects in the yellow pages. Um, way back when we had yellow pages. Way back when we had yellow pages. <laughs> and the first name I came across was Adler. And I picked up the phone and I called you. I think I had like a speech rehearsed and I said, you know, hey, I'm an architecture student. I need a summer job. Do you, rem do you remember this? I don't remember the call. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. And, uh, and you said, yeah, come on down. I need, I need some help. And that was it. And it kicked off my, my architecture career. And I worked there for 
several summers um, and had an amazing time. And I would say, you know, along with uh, Jim, who's still with you, is now your vice president. Uh, it's been an it was an amazing run there, and I learned so much. We'll get into kind of some of the things that I uh, that I learned. But um, as I said, I'm I'm so glad to have you here on the podcast. I am glad to be here as well. <laughs> you know, I um, I've gone back and listened to a lot of the uh, prior episodes of the Anti Architect <laughs> as well. And going back to your first episode, one of the things that you said was that you had learned through your internship with me. That and if I can just make sure I get the quote oh, right here, because oh, no. I did write it down, um, that um, that you learned that you didn't want to do residential because it would be a horrible existence for an architect. <laughs> That's so hilarious. I'm glad that I was able to help you get steered in the right. <laughs> that direction seems a little extreme, but, but yeah, that's funny. But no, I, it, it I did learn that. Like I always wanted to do big buildings in big cities. That was always my thing. Looking back, sort of, especially in doing research on you for this, you know, you have an incredible practice. And I think I would rescind my words there. Um, uh, I don't think I could do residential architecture um, in the same way. And we'll get into what that means, um, you know, in terms of single family homes. Uh, so if you had to pick one thing, uh, what annoys you about your fellow architects? Huh. You know, it's it's funny. Obviously, I knew you'd ask a question of this nature. Um <laughs> And as a rule, I don't really hang out with architects, right? It's yeah. just not sort of um, something that I do. I, I Yes, I'm a member of all those organizations that you meant. It sounds like I'm really busy, but I don't really participate that much, um, to be honest. And, and because primarily I'm very busy on what I'm actually doing on the affirmative side of things. But, um, you know, I think that that I guess what I would say is that as a rule, architects are – believed to be those who aren't going to make much money. Uh, it's what we're told from, you know, the beginning of our, our, our education process. I think all of us had at some point that class where there's a professor who said, if you're here because you think you're going to make a lot of money, you're in the wrong place, you should go now. And, um, and I never heard of anyone standing up and saying, but why? You know, and I think that Look, we know that the architectural profession doesn't have the same kind of income capacity that some other professional pursuits may have, but it is a great springboard to a lot of other things. And when you listen to what you just said about what I do, that's really what it is. I, you learn and you meet people and you you gain all these other experiences and you find ways to involve yourself in other things that um, that as a result you can – do well and you can run your business well. But I think as a rule, we're, we're, we're not given any business education. We're, we're told we're not going to make anything. We're told that design, it, you just, that's all you do is to focus on the design at the cost of all else. And so as a result, you know, we kind of believe that we're not going to, uh, you know, uh, have a, a pursuit of, of financial and business success. Yet it's expected that we're going to go into business. Yeah. So I think that as a rule, as a practice, you know, we need to think better about how that can be because we can do better than that. And we should do better. We should plan to do better rather than be given that opportunity, a lack of opportunity by it being sort of just said from the start, you're not going to make any money. So just be here for the love of this. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that that we're told that so early on in school? 
you know, in in architecture school, the idea is to stay so focused on design as the pursuit. It's the opportunity to put aside all of the real world situations and just say, I'm going to focus on design and honing the process of design. Um, but by the same time, the, they're they're also eliminating the ability to recognize where it fits into the practice of architecture. Sure. We take the class that's called that, but it has nothing to do with it. You know, you'll only practice. learn that after you've gotten into practice to realize that didn't tell me a thing. <laughs> um, and I think it's, it's a, um, it's a mistake from the beginning because it sets up that mindset that it's, you have to pick between the quality of design and the ability to have a, a good, make a good living from the practice. Yeah. And I think that it's okay to say you could do both. And in, in, you know, when, with anything else that we can pursue, if it's better, whatever that better widget is that you may sell, if it's better, you're permitted to make more. So if you're better at design, if you could do a wonderful design, you should be allowed to make more for it. Yeah. And I think it's a it's a rare, unfortunately, a rare scenario that you can reach that point uh, in this profession because it seems just established that we don't. Yeah. And it's funny. I talk about it, too, on this podcast, right? Like a lot of people do it for the love of the craft and the design, and they don't care about the business side. Even when even at my firm, when we we force the business side almost on people, hey, your projects need to be profitable. Hey, you need to go collect this. Hey, we need additional services for this. You know, stop giving away the farm. And listen, I'm the first one to give away the farm. Um <laughs> That's the other first quote I have from episode one. Um, Christian is Santa Claus. That's right. So <laughs> that's right. That, that's what our that's what our CFO uh, Bola calls me. Yeah, Santa Claus. I do. I I love I love rewarding people for doing great work. I really do. And if I could pay everybody, you know, as much as you know the market could demand or more, I absolutely would. Like yeah. there is no doubt. You know, if we could get more money, I would pay people more money. You know, it's it's not about me kind of sort of keeping money. It's more about keeping everybody happy and moving the firm forward. So but yeah, it's uh it's interesting that way. What about on the construction side? We'll get into sort of your you know, you've always been involved in construction, but do you think architects know how to actually build, how things get built? As a standard, absolutely not. And it's one of the problems within our our industry, right? Because um, there's such a separation between architecture and construction. And the architects are supposed to be writing this how-to manual that says, here's how to build this thing that I've created with the client. And yet the drawings are, are really the subtext often that says, I really don't know how to do this. I'm hoping you can figure <laughs> it out, but it should look something like this. And I think it's important that um, that architects should have more time in the field I try to encourage my own employees to get to our job sites. Yeah. And even at that, it's difficult because we're fortunate to be so busy. Uh, they've got their deadlines. They've got all the things that they need to accomplish. And they'll go, well, how do I get down to the job site? And yet I really want them to see that because there's so much that you learn being on a job site. I know what I understood as an architect when I first started my practice. I know how much of what I do now I've learned in the construction process. And I'll bet there's more that we do on our construction documents from what I've learned as a builder than from what I've learned through my practice itself. Yeah, I'm sure. And it is a very different set. We've very much changed the anatomy of a construction document set in order to, to do what we've understood about how you explain to the people in the field 
here's how this needs to go together. And one of the things that, and I have some great people working for me that really do understand those details who can put together these details in a way that says, if we, if we haven't described that well in our set, we're not finished yet. Yeah. This goes back to that that difficulty of how do you make money? How do you get the set? So we will sit down sometimes and talk about that. How do you make a set of construction documents that really defines the process and is that highly detailed and still make money at it because you're spending all that time? And it's always a difficulty. My staff usually says, just raise your fees. Just ask for more. <laughs> <laughs> we have the same thing, exactly the same thing. But you, I will say, and, and we can talk about this a little bit later too, is that I did learn efficiency of drawing with you. And maybe it was because we drew with, you know, pencil and vellum at the time yeah. that you couldn't just mass produce a bunch of garbage uh, and print it out. You had to be selective with what you drew by hand because you couldn't just photocopy it and change it again and photocopy it and change it again, just like you do now on the computer where it's just a variation on a theme, right? Yeah. So you had to figure it out. I had a... Um, uh, someone, a, a previous partner at, at Mancini, who he would constantly harp on everybody that were overdrawing, were overdrawing, were overdrawing. And I never quite understood because at the time I was always doing the drawing. Yeah. And I was like, but how, how am I going to explain this? I need to do it. But he was right. We were overdrawing, you know. You go to the you go to the site and the contractor skips half the half the thing looks at general dimensions and goes okay this is how I'm going to lay this out and this is how I'm going to do it. But I think that's also because so often the drawings are so unclear that the contractor thinks the better use for the set is to turn it over and just make sure I don't get any of my lunch on the hood of my truck. <laughs> and I think it's important that if you have a set that says I understand how to build this then I think they'll pay more attention to those details. And I think, you know, my my staff has created sets of drawings that has garnered really good compliments from builders. And I think that's a huge thing yeah. to be able to get the, the contractor to look at it and say, wow, there's a lot of information in here. There are also those contractors who get scared by that because yeah. they want the opportunity to make their own decisions. And a good set doesn't allow for that. It, yeah. it really says this is how you do it. And I think the overdrawing question is, is, is it our job to tell the contractor exactly what to do or just here's the image I'd like it to be. You figure out how to get there. And I think it's important that we say here's how you do it. That's how you control the overall cost of the project. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I think it's important that as architects, we need to know that. So there's another answer to that question. Yeah. What do we do wrong? <laughs> as a general rule, we don't know how to build. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, I want to talk a bit about residential architecture and focus sort of on single family homes for a little bit, the, the part of the profession that I would have, uh, you know, that was torture. Uh, to <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, what attracted you to start your practice sort of around single family residential? I think... It was really my primary experience with architecture. Um, you know, I actually grew up before I moved to New Jersey. I lived in in Massachusetts, and I grew up in Plymouth County. So I was as far back as you know the surroundings to Plymouth Rock, and would ride my bike there and and see those things. And so the the my experience in architecture was at a more um, you know sort of more personal level like that than it was at the the larger cities. And while I lived near Boston, I was rarely in Boston. So for me, it was that 
along with my parents, had a house built. And while it was really nothing to write home about, that experience was something that resonated with me. And I just felt that that was, that was a, something that I wanted to be able to do. Hmm. And I've known since I was a little kid, I, I wanted to build buildings. I just didn't really know what that meant, but <laughs> I knew I wanted to do that. That's interesting. So I, I talk about this, my experience in architecture, I credit to my mother who was always renovating our house. And I was fascinated by watching the contractors just build things. And figure it, and it wasn't like we, you know, hired an architect and it was a formal thing. It was, you know, she wanted to raise the ceiling here or put a coffered area or put trim here. And I, I loved watching that building process. And that's what kind of inspired me as well. That's interesting. You know, your experiences build you, right? And I think that it's, it, for me though, I'd never really thought that the larger buildings resonated for me. When I went to school, that was what we were supposed to care about. It was the rare project where we would do a residence. Yeah. Uh, and it was almost thought of like, uh, well, nobody does that. You know, anybody yeah. can do it. So nobody's going to go to school to do that. And um, but the other thing that really makes residential architecture uh, a, a very different and I think very rewarding practice is the very personal nature of it. Because you know, you you can – we do commercial work as well and, yeah. and I enjoy that and I have some really great clients that we work with. But some of those clients have also done their homes, some where I've met them doing their homes first, some where we've evolved into that. And it is a very different relationship when you're doing the residential work for them because they're really they're, – it's all coming from their heart and they're thinking about details that they just don't think about in the commercial side of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And it's really – I mean we have, we have one project right now that I believe it's going on its 10th year. <laughs> and, you know, talk about getting into the details. It's really – I met with them for years once a week. I actually lived on the site for two years. And it was something where, you know, that, that level of, of, of um, sort of personal connection is something you can't get on the commercial side. So for me, that's really rewarding. I'm going to go back to that. But how do you keep the interest of your staff on a project that's that long? I know we have projects like we have a hotel and I won't say which one, but it stops and starts and stops and starts and going on for years and years and years. And it's it's one of those things where when you come back to it and you of course now you for us in a big firm a hundred person firm you've got to get you know try and get the same people back on the project which is a whole other task itself right but let's say we do eventually get everybody back on that project there's a oh this project again you know what are we going to do do this for another six months and then it's going to get shelved again how do you keep interest on a project that goes that long it is hard and in fact the same kind of tone <laughs> you know permeates this particular one as well but you know i think it's a um it, it's one of those things where ultimately when it starts to come together um some of those details that i'm talking about that personal connection you talk about that you bring that back you mentioned my VP, Jim. He went to this project not too long ago for an elevator inspection. And he hadn't been there in a couple of years. So the amount of really cool detail, uh, these hand-carved stone details that we're doing both inside and out on this house, is something he hadn't seen. And he walked around, spent more time taking pictures of the place than he oh, did cool. doing the inspection, brought it back, showed it to uh, a lot of the others in the office. And I'm getting questions from, hey, you know, how did you do this? How did you make that happen? How does this stand up? You know, they're looking at this really 
crazy oval stair that is self-suspending clad in stone and they're just like this doesn't make sense you know well we have pixie dust and magic and but this is actually how it works and i think those kinds of things that they start seeing when it comes back together it takes in this number of years there were several where the interest wasn't as as strong but now as those details are coming together they're seeing it they're really kind of falling back in love with what they knew I mean, I have I have employees who've been here for that entire time, wow. and so they 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 started the project. They're still looking at it. It's probably the largest <laughs> file we have, you know, uh, in our in our system, and uh, and and it is it's a tough thing, you know, when we get down to those details yeah. um, at, at year seven and year eight, and you're looking at it going, it's nowhere near done, you know. <laughs> So you, you you talked a little bit about this, the difference between commercial clients and residential clients. And I think that's where for me, um, the I've always – I've done residential but more uh, as freelance work when I was sort of living in New York City and working. Um, I had a lot of residential clients. It was always apartments, right? And it was – I did do a very large uh, apartment, 11-bedroom apartment. But most of my freelance work was one and two-bedroom apartments not super high budget, um, but, you know, decent chunk of stuff. And I think what drove me insane was you the, – the amount of detail in terms of the, the minutia. It's almost – it's not – like that house that you're talking about sounds like those are fantastic details. But then there are the details of, well, I don't quite like that tile pattern. I don't quite like that. Where in a commercial – you know, look, in a commercial, we do a restaurant. It's super high end. There's great details but at the end of the day, there's only two bathrooms and they're identical, right? right? right. You do some of the residential work you do, you may have seven, eight, ten bathrooms and every single one of them is different. Every handle is different. Every you know uh, mirror is, is different. Every light is different. And that – I don't know how you do that. <laughs> you know, there are some projects where you have interior designers that you work with and they're yeah. bringing a lot of these ideas to a project. You have others where you're doing that interior detailing yourself. For me, when we're building the project, I love to be the one doing that interior detailing because we're doing it kind of organically as the project evolves. Um, when it's a, a traditional project especially because we have a, a pretty good mix of, of modern and traditional, um, some mixed within the same project even. But when we get to that traditional side of it, I, I'll love to, to get to the point where the sheetrock is on the wall and then go and sketch in full scale on the wall the trim detailing. Oh, wow. And then we'll mock up different components of that. Uh, the same thing with tile pattern. We'll snap out lines on the floor and really look at it in the proportion of the space and get the client truly engaged in that level of detail. It's a it's it's something that's very personal. So people can get very excited about it. When you got to have the right client too. Yeah. There are clients who are insatiable. There are clients who have this doesn't matter what you do, they're not going to be happy enough. <laughs> and they're much harder to to engage and get your heart into it. But when the client loves what they're trying to do and we're getting all on the same page together with it, it feeds on itself. You lose track of time. You know, <laughs> you just get there and you do it and you have fun doing it. So it, it is a um it is one where where the love of design and the passion of design and, and the passion of architecture is is really where it comes from. You have to then step back to go, it's a business too, and how do we make that work? Yeah. And I've hired people <laughs> to pull on my leash and go, we got to make this work. <laughs> you know? So as far as you mentioned interior designers, so I assume some clients come with their interior designers and you work with them. However, I'm sure – some are better than others, just like we have every now and then we'll have an interior 
designer that comes along and we can get anything from a napkin sketch and, you know, a Pinterest board to um, some very detailed stuff. Like we'll work with Soho House and they they do some very detailed, intricate designs and then we'll kind of make that a reality. Um, what is that like for you when when working with interior designers? It really, like you said, it depends upon the designer, right? There are some designers who can really collaborate so that the interior doesn't feel like you went to Interiors R Us after you built a great design for the overall building. The The design needs to be one coherent design, even if it doesn't come from one mind. And so for those who want to work with you as the architect and hopefully recognize that the inception of this design is the client and the architect, and then the design is to enhance it, not replace it, then it becomes a great experience. For the designer who feels that they need to make their um, their show out of that, <laughs> you know, I think it becomes more difficult because you can get into this debate that never has an end and, and somebody just has to give up at some point, you know, <laughs> and that's never the best design result, unfortunately. And you, you, you mentioned you, you know, there are some houses even inside, right, where there's a mix of traditional and modern. To me, you've never followed trends, right? You have your own signature style. I don't know if you know what your signature style is. I know when I was doing design work you know, regularly, um, people would tell me, oh, all of your buildings look, look, look very similar, right? Right. Um, and I would, I would think, all right, well, that's not true, you know, but I could see, I could see why. So what is your design philosophy when sitting down and, and starting a project? Uh, it starts with asking the client what they're looking for, right? We have to design for someone else. This is after all a service. Um, I'd love to be able to have that situation where I can say it's a privilege for you to work with me, but I don't think that's ever really <laughs> the case, right? I think it's important that we're we're able to to know what the client's taste is. But very often the client will say, I don't really know. I like this. I like that. I like this. And so that then brings it around to where my love is in the, the, the embrace of eclecticism. Don't follow a set of rules because if you do, you're just designing what you've already done. But bring them together into something where you can have a series of features that are identifiable, that bring you into the tradition that maybe is their, their taste or some of their taste, but do it in a way that is it's, it's uniquely that client's home. Yeah. And so, you know, it's funny. I, I you say that I that my stuff. I've had that critique where some of my stuff looks the same as other. And it's often because somebody says, "I like this thing that you did. I want to. I want you yeah. to do that again for me." And and you try to find ways to expand upon it and adjust and come up with something else. And uh, and it's it's an opportunity when somebody finally says, can you do something you've never done before? <laughs> and you expand upon that style. You expand upon what is your signature. And if you can keep your hand to that so that it still says, I'm, I'm going to draw now upon some other flavor, some other style, but in a way that feels like it still comes from what my belief and my feel of architecture needs to be. When it's residential, I love to do homes that have a, a more human scale even when they're huge. Yeah. 
And I want it to feel like when you're in certain spaces that you don't note that you're in this massive home or when you're in this little home, you don't feel compressed. It feels like, it's, you know, you can play with that scale on that feel and you could do that in any style. And if yeah. you can do that, then you have, I think I have my signature on that. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. But, but I think having a signature is, is something to be proud of at the end of the day. You know, you're, it's, it's, I wouldn't say that everything looks the same. There is a style to it, which is great. And it's your style, which is kind of cool. You know, you're not just, hey, today I'm going to do only modern farmhouse, right? <laughs> right. Like, that's the thing. I see everybody with black windows and white, you know, vertical siding now. That That's like the new thing. So. Yeah. And, and I think that it's important that when you – when somebody says, I want that white siding and black window frames, um, you figure out where it's coming from, why, what else you can bring into that and hopefully not make it the same modern farmhouse yeah, that exactly. everybody else has. Exactly. So do you – do you stay involved still as the designer, the architect um, on all your projects, sort of the way I remember you sitting down and, and physically drawing? Are you still as involved? I very selfishly designed my firm around making sure that's what I get to do. So I, I do the design work. I have people that work for me that do the things I'm not as good at doing better than me mm. so that I don't have to do those things. So I have great people doing drafting, doing detailing, uh, doing business management, uh, overseeing the, the scheduling of the staff and so forth so that I can design, I can meet with clients. That's what I love to do. Yeah. You know? So I don't want to ever give that up. Obviously, as a business owner, as a practice manager, you have to do all the other stuff. So I have to be the primary salesperson. I have to be the the overall business manager. I have to be able to deal with all facets. And I have to be able to deal with a mason as much as I have to deal with the CEO of a company that either we're doing commercial or we're doing his home. Yeah. And um, and being able to flip those switches and and move between those different worlds is uh actually very exciting it keeps yeah. keeps your blood moving yeah no that's it's it's a testament that you you still do that i could i could picture that you know you <laughs> sitting there and still doing the drawings and and figuring out the design are you still hand drawing absolutely that's great the, to me the only way to come up with a design is a pen and trace wow. um and I just use different color pens to get different <laughs> layers in my head, even though, you know, I, the, the sense of layering in CAD, it's as though that was the first place layering came from, but it's not. And and when you sketch, if you use different weight pens and different, you know, some pencils and pens and different colors, that layering is there. And that's where I think it came from in CAD is the thinking that is that. So sketching is, for me, the way to connect my brain to a, to a you know, some image that I'm creating. Interesting. So, uh, and a little bit more on the on the residential, the single family side, and then we'll switch gears. But is I know in my I want to talk a little bit about pricing, right? How should a residential architect be pricing work? Because um, I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting to the audience. We don't talk about this as often, right? I know how to price a half a million square foot corporate interiors job. I know how to price a you know a thirty story out of the ground building. Um, seems awfully complicated, but to me, it's actually not. It's pretty commoditized. Um, how do you? How should a residential architect price a design? I know it obviously varies, but yeah, and it took me years to figure it out, and then I found out it was wrong anyway. So, <laughs> you know, because my staff keeps telling me you have to charge more, and I think the funny thing is, I resisted my staff for the longest time. That you know, well, you can't. Nobody's going to pay that. And then one time I went, maybe we should try that. And it turns out, yeah, if you if you can do a great job, if you can create the better 
mousetrap out of what you do, then you can sell it for more. So think about architecture, think about design the same way, but you have to start with creating the better, right? So yeah. you don't get paid to create the, 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 um, the practice you get paid once you have. And, um, look at the beginning of my practice, I gave away design. <clears throat> my contracts were that the design phase was free. And if you like it, then here's how much I'll charge you for the construction documents. I figured nobody could beat my price at that point. And for the most part, people then had me do the construction docs. It's how I was able to build a portfolio of work. And then eventually I had the, you know, the, the bravado to say, I'm going to charge for design now too, you know? <laughs> and, um, and then little by little, you start realizing that people are appreciating what you're doing. And so you charge more and you, you look at where your market is and who you're competing with. I've actually had clients come to me at times over my career and say, you know, you can charge more. Not me, of course, you know, because I'm now <laughs> contracted with you, but you know, the other people were charging this. And <clears throat> so you start learning that you can you can do more if you if you do a better job, if you can have a better quality, then people will seek out that better quality and they'll want to pay up for that. But the key for me, I think, is also that the practice is a word of mouth business. I don't advertise. I don't yeah. seek it otherwise. And so when someone comes to you pre-qualified, when they come to you and they've looked at your work, they know what it is. I mean, for me, we don't even do much in terms of social media. We need to start doing more of that so that people can see what we do even better. And I think when they see that and they recognize you as somebody who does great work, then then they'll pay for that. Mm -hmm. But how do you do it? Is it formulaic? It's not, unfortunately. It's very difficult to say. But what we've worked on is to come up with some way of saying how much time do we think it's going to take? And we look at it based upon our time investment into the project. And we look at the cost of the practice and what the cost of time and the cost of business is and say, here's how we need to have our base cost. Let's put a reasonable, moderate level of profit and overhead on there. And that's where we are. Right. And then it goes to negotiation and you never get that. <laughs> so, um, But it, it's a hard thing because you can't really know for sure what it's going to cost you to produce it. You can only guess and hope you're right. Some I know on the residential side sort of keep it very open-ended. It's a percent it's a percentage of construction cost. Have you ever experimented with that? Yeah, clients don't generally like that open-ended. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, they they want to know <laughs> before does. they start. No, of course yeah. not. And and I can understand that. I mean, I would hate to go to the grocery store and get a bill later saying that it seems like you enjoyed those eggs. We're going to charge you a little bit more now. <laughs> you know, I think it's important that you're that clients want to know what's it going to be before you start. And I think also what happens with the design process when you are willing to put in whatever it takes to get that design to work, you don't want the client wondering if you brought them some lousy idea first so that you could charge them for the next one too. So if you take the money away from the design and you establish a fixed number so that it is what it is and, and doesn't then then they believe in what you're doing for the design. And the truth is for a business that is that is um getting its work from word of mouth, you have to make the client happy enough to say something good about you after you're done. Yeah. And if they feel like you did it for the billings instead of for the love of what you do, they're going to say that too. Yeah. I, that, that's great. Very well said. So you mentioned you grew up in Massachusetts. Yes. What brought you down to Jersey in, in, in this area, the Jersey Shore? My father got a job in New York City and we moved to New Jersey. It wasn't like I said, I think I'm going to move to New Jersey during high school. So. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you think that kind of shaped you moving to New Jersey? I lived here for two years before I went to school. Okay. Uh, you know, and, and in fact, that first summer – uh, I went to a summer program in Harvard. I was back in, in Boston again. And so I would say New Jersey almost didn't shape me. 
at, at, you know, I, I left then, went to, to upstate New York for school. So I was really not about New Jersey at all. I actually knew very little by the time I, uh, I got out of school and was back here. And, um, and yet now I feel like it's the place yeah. I'm from, you know, yeah. it's, it's where I've certainly been the most. What made you come back and ultimately start your firm in Long Branch? Uh, again, I was, my family was rooted here. So I came okay. back to where the roots were at that moment. Uh, and I think it was less by deliberate or by design. It was just happenstance. I was here, but like you, I did the cold call opportunity for my jobs. Uh, when I got out of school, it was 1986. There was a decent amount of work happening at that time. And so I just called firms and then I said, this is the one I think I want to work with. They're doing something kind of cool. And they wanted me to be involved in the design side, not just, just doing drafting yeah, of drawings. And I still had no idea, right? When you get out of college, you have no idea what that job is going to entail. And uh, you think you have the world by the short hairs and I'm going to design all these great things. And then you realize you know so little about what you have to do. And you have to learn it in three years. Mm -hmm. And hopefully learn it in three years if you're going to get your, your, your license at that point. So I was lucky. I did have a firm that I would, let's call it, they allowed me to do everything. Um, they also made me do everything. But I had two partners in that firm that were, um, one was very code oriented. He was also a licensed building inspector. The other one was much more on the design and on the sales side. And I got to see all the hats that we have to wear and learn tremendously from them. I was really hurt when they fired me because I got my license. But like the baby bird getting pushed out of the nest, I wouldn't have done it if they didn't push me out like that. So in the end, it was the best thing they did for me. But that 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 ability to learn from them and and learn about it here mm -hmm. made me about being here. And that's where I stayed. And so at the end of the day, you get fired and then you immediately decide that's it. I'm going to work for myself. That was 1989. And there were no firms hiring anyone. <laughs> so I hadn't really much choice. But at the same time, I had just gotten my license to practice and I was still young and dumb enough to think that I could do it. And so I said, yeah, let's let's do this. I'm going to start my practice. And by the end of that day, I had sat down at my dining room table and drawn my title block. So I feel like now I'm in business. I have a title block. You know, I, I know what I'm doing. I remember you telling me that story that you drew, that you drew your title block, which is still the same title block. You oh, no, today. I've changed it. Oh, since. you have? There's some snippets of it in there, but okay. we tweaked it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was very intricate, um, which was great. Yeah. I mean, it was a design. You know, we yeah. actually, we, I, I had nothing else to draw at that point. So that's what I drew. <laughs> And uh, and then I was fortunate that clients that I worked with at that firm gave me calls and 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 said, well, you know, gee, we know you're the one that was doing that this type of work there. We heard you're going out on your own, and I think they also saw it as an opportunity. They knew that uh, obviously I would not be uh, as expensive. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's great. So I want to I want to kind of touch on uh, a few things that I remember as an intern from 30 years ago which I can't believe is 30 years ago. <laughs> um, so we, we talked a little bit about it, uh, pencil on vellum. Um, 
you know, I when I went to architecture school, it was in fact hand drawing, right? It, computers were beginning at that point. Um, CAD was brand new. It was like CAD version one in MS DOS and something weird like that. And but I remember distinctly that your process was pencil on vellum, which is a little bit unique, um, but created beautiful drawings at the end of the day. And we use this, um, the blueprint machine that was in the same room that Jim and I worked in. <laughs> oh, and it was, there was like an ammonia, was it ammonia? Ammonia based, yeah. yeah. Ammonia, and it, yeah. and it stunk. And so even when it was like, you know, 20 below, you'd have to open up the windows and freeze each other out because you couldn't, you couldn't breathe. Couldn't breathe otherwise, way. yeah. <laughs> do you still use that blueprint we machine? We do not. No, no, we caught up That's a little bit. That's too bad. Yeah. <laughs> Although I believe it is in the basement. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 So some museum someday may be looking for it. We'll see. Yeah, I don't know if any other architects ever worked like that. But why the pencil on vellum? You know, you got a much better ability to control line weight. And line weight to me at that point was very important because, again, thinking about those layers, right? In CAD, we think in layers. <clears throat> in, in, in hand drafting, I wanted things that were – Plan as a section, right? Just a horizontal section. I wanted that to read. I wanted the, mm -hmm. the places when you were cutting through a wall to be really, really bold and strong. I wanted with the myriad of, of dimension strings and notes and arrows and everything else on the set, I wanted that plan to scream out at you on the drawing. And so pencil gave us that ability to do it. It also gave new challenges, right? Because you ended up with these, you know, these gray sheets and your arms were covered. Covered, in it and, covered your whole yeah. sleeve. <laughs> uh, so, the, so there's a couple things I remember specifically that I learned from you with those, those techniques that I still profess today, believe it or not. Wow. Um, very much the line weight thing. So I, I pride myself on my drawings, even when I replicated them in CAD, the line weights were based on what you had taught me, especially wow. outlining sections. I, as a matter of fact, yesterday, even yesterday, I sat down with someone in our office and they were showing me something in plan. And I said to him, is there any way you could pochet those walls? Like make them a little bolder. <laughs> I can't tell. It's distracting. There's too much line, too many lines here that are all the same. And I think we've lost that art form of drawing, which, as you said, when the contractor looks at what they're going to build, it needs to pop. Um, it needs to say, these are the walls, and now I instantaneously understand it. Absolutely. Yeah, um, that's key. The other thing I learned from you and from Jim specifically was how to survey. Um, and you guys taught me how to survey. It seems like a silly thing. I tell, I tell the staff all the time, I love to this day surveying. People, most people hate it, but I love it. And, you know, now we go in with the Matterports and the LIDARs and we scan the living crap out of everything right. and you have too much detail. And I remember Jim telling me, you don't measure the wall, you measure the the distance between the walls, right? Because no wall is straight. And, you, you, you know, you, when you look down and plan, you know, you're not going to, every little variation you're not going to play with. It's just point A to point B and that's your wall. Um, and same thing, very similarly, I... Every now and then I'll do still do a survey just because I enjoy it. Wow. And if nobody's available, I'll, say, I'll go survey it. I don't mind. It'll be fun. So I'll go and survey. And uh, one, of the, one of the staff members said to me, um, you know, what's on the Matterport and what you drew don't line up. And I said, well, I guarantee you, guarantee you my drawing is correct. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I learned how to survey the right way. <laughs> and sure enough, he actually came back and he said, no, 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 your drawing was correct. I said, I know. Yeah. It's always correct. <laughs> I learned how to survey. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, 
the and I, I mentioned this before. I think drawing efficiently in limited drawing. So now with you know you've moved on to AutoCAD. I don't know. Do you use Revit at all? Have you? We don't. And we've worked. We've collaborated with some other firms on things, and uh, we've needed to have them you know sort of dummy it down to our our AutoCAD. I don't think yet it's the investment for us. Mm -hmm. um, it's a lot to invest in. We've looked in, into it a couple of times, um, but we're, we're still holding fast on uh, AutoCAD. Yeah. And so do you see, do you, do you look back and think, well, when everyone was hand drawing and we were doing that with the blueprint machine, was it actually more efficient than it is in CAD? No, look, the idea of CAD is that you can copy and paste things in an efficient way. We, we'll take a, a wall section from a prior project and we'll use it, whatever the, the most similar project, most recent similar project is that we have, and try to make use of some of the graphics or some of the information, some of the things we've learned. As we build, we learn more things. Our construction documents become something better each time. So we always want to go to the most recent like that. But Still, it's for us, everything's virtually a one-off, uh, but the means by which you build doesn't change. Yeah. So that's something that we would still be able to draw upon. And I think, look, initially when we switched over to CAD, it was a partial switch. I was adamant that floor plans were still going to be hand-drawn because <laughs> I wanted that graphic. And uh, I, but the sections I felt, okay, that's the place where it's really going to make sense. And I, I knew that going forward for the rest of, of uh, architectural eternity, that's the only place CAD was going to fit in. It was wrong, obviously, <laughs> but, you know, I think that it does, it makes the difference for us. But the, the, the way we use our line weights, like you, you just said, it was, is we've, we've done the same thing to take all of the things that we did on the hand drafting and implement that into the way our CAD set uh, looks. But I think that it's um, I, I think that it's a, a key that um, we try to use our, our CAD software as uh, an aid, right? Isn't that what yeah. A is supposed to be, yeah. right? And um, and and make it so that we can do more and have more detail. And we do, uh, you know, a set of drawings that we did back when we drew by hand might have been for the same size home. 12, 15, 17, 18 sheets, right? Now we're 35 sheets yeah. of drawings because if there's another place you can cut a section and it's not the same as the others, then you're not done. You've got to do another yeah. section. Yeah. But you can take much of it where it's the same and only alter the part that you just did. And that's really very helpful. So we can do a lot better detail because of CAD. Yeah. Another thing I learned from you is that architects should be able to size their own structure um, that you don't need a structural engineer or an MEP engineer for absolutely every single thing you do. I feel like in my firm, um, and, and let's call it the big firms, there is this parsing out of every little thing, right? Where in your firm, I, I assume it's still the same way, is, you know, look, you may need to call a structural engineer if there's something special or something different that you've done. But in general, an architect should know hey, this is about how big it should be. This is about how it should go together. You have to have enough of a feel, right? That you are not blindsided by when you do need to have an engineer work with you on something that that you've not accommodated anything. Yeah. Um, I remember one of your prior episodes, you're talking about your new office and that even you didn't leave enough room for your uh, <laughs> your mechanical space because we don't want that. We want it to just exist somewhere off site and, and bring in what we need yep. in terms of, you know, heat, air conditioning, electric, et cetera. And, uh, and I think though, that if we have a good feel for what it takes to do those things, and I, look, I will tell you that 
that a lot of times I'll get lost in my design process without that. And Jim will say to me, you need, you still need this work. You know, where are you going to fit the AC? Where are you going to fit? And, and it's, and it's key, right? When we collaborate with others, we've had that same situation as architects, we lose that. And it's really important as you're looking at the section to know how thick your floor is going to need to be based upon the system you're going to use. There are times we have to work with engineers. Yeah. Uh, there's stuff that's just beyond our, yeah. our core capacity and it's important we can collaborate with them and in order to do that we have to understand it yeah but i think you can you can start like i i feel like we get the 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 generation now is they they're they can't even start you know and i'll say like just put a 30 by 30 grid you know if it's a commercial building you know make the columns start with two feet make them two feet boxes and move on from there right and and Generally, it's going to be pretty close to that, yeah. right? And but there's a a stuckness factor to that where I I can't start. I need all of these other trades to get me started. Which right. Is, I don't know. I I I don't quite uh I don't quite get it. Um, I would say um, one of the other things I learned from you um, oh. early on, and you're you're not gonna you you may or may not remember something like this is you always worked past the time when everybody left the office. You were always there working. Um, and that stuck with me. I I am that way now. It's a little bit different because, you know, you can go home and keep working, that kind of thing. Um, but I learned that, oh, the owner of the company works the hardest and works the longest. And that stuck with me as opposed to, I think there's a generation now that the people think that the owner, you know, has the easy life. Right. <laughs> the owner makes their money off of the sweat of others' uh, brow, right? And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're going to do a good job, you're going to set a better example and you're going to do that. But also if you're passionate about what you do, you're going to stay later because you're just trying to get that to happen. You just want that thing to be, to be right, to be done. And uh, I think that's something that for me came from, from school. Um, when deadlines are set at midnight on a Sunday, uh, it says to you, you're supposed to work the weekend. Yeah. It doesn't say you're working till Friday, but <laughs> just pop in on Sunday and drop things off. And, um, and it kind of gave me the sense like, uh, you know, every hour is an available hour to do something really cool and creative, not, um, you know, not just the work hours. Yeah. Um, and, and that whole idea that if you can love what you do, it's not work. It's great. Sometimes it's still work, <laughs> but you have to. You have yeah. to do that. You have to have that kind of a dedication to it. Yeah. Have you – the firm's grown obviously since the – I think it was maybe four people when I was there. Uh, how large is the firm now? Fourteen. Okay. Yeah. And um, have there been struggles and challenges with the firm on the business side over the years or has it always been sort of a an upward rise? Oh, we've had – you know, peaks and valleys all the way through. We've been through a lot of different economic up and downturns and uh, situations where client, all the clients are calling and saying, put everything on hold, you know, 9-11, mm -hmm. uh, the crash of 08, uh, you know, all those things. And, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I happen to be during the crash of 08 with a client that we're, we're doing a development for them, residential development. And while we were there, this crash was occurring and he was a former Wall Streeter turned developer. And while the crash was occurring, he was renegotiating our contract. 
<laughs> so oh, man. he's like getting live news and then saying to me, I think you're going to have to do it for this much now. <laughs> and now let's get back to the design we were talking about. Oh, man. How, when you talk about residential developments, these are these are suburban developments, but you're doing all of the houses in the developments. Yeah. I mean, typically we don't do the development where you, you design one house that they then, build yeah. 12 different ways or 12 different times. Um, we haven't done a lot of developments, but when we do, it's one where they're looking for each home to be more of a one-off design. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it's a little bit different. But, yeah. yeah. I looked at a development that you're doing now right here in Red Bank um, on, I guess it's Front Street. Um, there's a little alcove there and there's all houses, it says, by Robert W. Adler, which is funny. And I thought, oh, that'd be cool if Rob would design our house. <laughs> but it was too expensive. I couldn't afford it. Oh, so. <laughs> Um, in terms of, of projects, uh, what are some of the projects that you've done that you're most proud of? And I, I know you don't want to necessarily name names, but you know, there's a lot of like interesting, cool people that live on the Jersey shore. Talk a little bit about some of those houses. Yeah, we've had great opportunities. We've had people that really want spectacular design and not spectacular meaning ostentatious. It's not about trying to show off, although sometimes that happens, um, but we've we've had very um, creative and affluent clientele who give us the opportunity to be creative. So you know, it, there's been there's been such a variety of, of opportunity for us. I mean, it's hard to say which are my favorite because I think each year I find a new favorite. Mm -hmm. um, I can still look backward and find some that I love. The one that's been going on for ten years has been actually a really great experience for us, and I love the project. I love the house. I love the client. Um, you know, like I said, I lived there for two years. I lived there for two years because the client came to me when I was getting divorced and said, we want you to stay here. Oh, cool. Uh, and, and you'll get yourself back on your feet and, and then you'll move on, but you have this place to stay. And it was a, a you know, a guest house that I had designed. And, and, uh, <laughs> so it was kind of interesting to, to have that, you know, a client that cared enough, you know, yeah. and I think what makes it a favorite project isn't always the end design, but the relationship that you build. And that's the opportunity in residential that I think often you don't have in commercial. Interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the construction side of things. You have your own construction company as part of it. Um, how, and you've, you've always had that. I remember that from when I was an intern, you know, you, or you were a partner in a construction company. And now I guess you have one on your own. Um, how did that kind of come about as, as part of your, I don't even want to say it's part of your services, but part of another thing that you do? You know, I think it was a, a twofold inception. One was the idea that the fear of failure, um, if you have each client an opportunity to do two things for them, you have more possibility for success. And so if I can both design and then build it, I felt I felt this sort of uh, backup plan comfort. <laughs> but by the same token, I also had spent enough time in my internship and my first year in practice where I saw that the, the projects that were being built weren't being built the way we had drawn them or the way we had in, envisioned them. And so I felt if I could take the, the, the design that I'd created and then also implement that I had better control over the quality of that design by the time it was finished. What I found out in that first year was the business of construction drives often the changes that happen from the design to the execution. And I found that architects, including me at that time, didn't know how to tell the builder what to do. And so that learning experience 
first was an expensive one. Um, you know, I had uh, a lot of debt to pay off after the first couple <laughs> of years of construction. And uh, but that's what I chose to do was pay it off instead of say, I- I'm out of here. And that built some great relationships with people when they realized that I was going to go do other work and pay them back for what they allowed me to wait on paying. And and so the construction then became a way of, of preserving the design at the same time as a great passion because there's something really spectacular about having an idea long ago, creating it with the client, des- designing it to the, to the finite detail, and then actually getting to put it together. It's the ultimate Legos. It's the, you know, <laughs> what I did as a four-year-old, I get to do as an adult and it stands up and stays there, you know, it's pretty cool. So are you more of a construction manager or do you have staff, you know, builders on staff, that kind of thing? We're construction management only. Okay. So we don't have any laborers on staff. We subcontract all the components. It's the way we put experts on everything that gets done. I don't have a roofer working on framing or a plumber helping us out with okay. the electrical. Um, I have you know great people that are experts in their trade doing that trade. And we have people that, that are, are our go-to team, sure. you know, so that we can. But our method is also to be our client's advocate. So we're looking for the right one of each of those trades for our client for that project. So it may be a stable of three or four framers, and we're going to pick the one that really belongs on that project and help the client see that's the best one and get them the right price. So we're management as the client advocate. Okay. And it's a very different process, right? Because typically the builder's in business for the builder. And we have to be, right? Again, we want to make money doing what we do. But if we, the same thing we do with our architectural fee, we fix our construction fee so that it takes away the ability to make money on changes. Uh, And this way the client can believe us when we tell them, by the way, you're going to need this change order, but it doesn't come to me. It's going to go to that sub or to that supplier. And uh, and we work better as a as a team and as a, a um, still somebody who's a friend with the client. Right. Um, because they see us as somebody who's out there to, to help them pull this thing together. Do you ever do it as design build, like you're designing and then sort of all in one? You know, as time has evolved, um, we've had people where we've either built for them before, so they've said right from the start, we want you to build it, or where they've known somebody that we've built for, and so that's where the case is. That We've had clients, we have some right now, where they're saying, look, it makes sense that that the architect who knows how to put this together would also be our builder because there's, there won't be that dispute. There's there's a standard dispute between builders and architects. Absolutely. And the client's always caught in the middle of that. And unfortunately, they don't. They're not armed for for the process of of trying to fix that. They don't know how to be the judge or the jury over that dispute. So if you can eliminate that and fix the price, so you know that you're not getting a, a, a sort of the fox watching the chicken coop. I yeah. think it's it's something that people appreciate when they really drill down on it. Yeah, as long as you do an open book where you say to the client, this is how much it's going to cost. These are what these people are costing. I vetted all of these people. And by the way, this is the profit, right? Yeah. There, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. I show people we're going to make a profit right. doing this. <laughs> and, and I think that most of my clients have enough success in their own finances that they know that, that should be. And yeah, they wouldn't respect me if I didn't. And I think that's important. I, I feared that at one time. Um, I remember much earlier in my career thinking I was ready to get my next car. And I'm thinking, I have to really not get anything all that great because people might think I'm, I'm making too much money. And I had a, a client say to me, no, we want to see that you're doing well. Yeah. 
who wants to hire you if they think you may not be around in a couple of years when we might have another question for you? Yeah. And uh, and I started thinking differently. Even the way I dressed, I changed because of this particular client saying to me, your success is important to us. Mm. And I never really thought of that in the earlier stages of my career. So to show the client that you're going to make a profit is a really, I think, a, a great thing. Yeah. Uh, not a, not a, Not a wrong thing. But also to show them that it's a reasonable and moderate profit, not yeah, you're not gouging them. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's – so let's talk a little bit about as we kind of close up here, uh, the Rumson Historical Society. I mentioned that in the introduction. You're the chair of of the um, the Rumson Historic Commission. What makes Rumson, New Jersey so special? Because it is a pretty amazing place for it's those cool who have never seen it. Yeah, I mean look. This was a, a, a place that um, in, in back in the day, um, aristocracy, uh, you know – came here to summer and uh and so the it's it's a place where great architects have built right there's stanford white buildings yeah. in rumson uh and and so there's a there's a, a pretty steep history and to just i mean i'm still getting to know and understand it i've only lived in rumson for 27 years so <laughs> i'm not from rumson yet you know and uh but just even the history of how the main road, Rumson Road, was once a a a, 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 a dirt road, and the first sprinkler system was developed in Rumson irrigation system, right, to irrigate the road so that it didn't, it wasn't dusty uh -huh, for cool. people who were driving in these open, you know, cars that that would just be filthy by the time they get to their their summer mm -hmm. home. They aren't because there was there was this irrigation system. That's cool. Yeah, very. You cool. know, that's very cool. Yeah, very cool. Um, so as we wrap up, is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to talk about? Wow. No, I don't think I had any, <laughs> uh, any agenda other than to uh, point out that you had said that being a residential architect would be a horrible existence. And I'm glad I started there. <laughs> I love it. Listen, it's the anti-architect exactly. coming at me. It's yeah. great. It's great. Well, listen, I can't thank you enough for being a guest here on the thank show. You. Um, you know, it, it, you really did start my career and, I'm glad we reconnected and it's funny how we reconnected almost like over LinkedIn years and years later and you know now now we've gotten to spend some time together and it's just um it's just been great to you know as I've gotten older and kind of really look back and appreciate kind of what you offered me as literally a kid you know probably 19 20 years old at the at the time um, getting my start, it's it's invaluable, and I can't thank you enough for well, it. Well, it's been my pleasure to see how incredible your career has gone. Um, it's actually been something I've truly enjoyed oh, seeing. Thank you. And uh, you know, I guess I take Frank Lloyd Wright started under a guy named Adler, so <laughs> I'm uh, I'm proud to be another one in that sort of vein. Well, I'll keep trying to make you proud and keep growing and and doing whatever the heck it is that I do. No so. doubt it'll happen. Well, thank you so much to to. To see and learn more about Rob, you can uh, and his wonderful firm, uh, just visit his website, rwadleradlerassociates.com. And Rob, as I mentioned, is on LinkedIn. You can do that as well. Any other particular plugs? We're going to be starting to show our work on other social media. So cool. stay tuned and we'll, we'll get that out there too soon. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Thank you.